0: This is the Horse Radio Network.
1: Good Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Coach Jen from Ocala, Florida.
2: And I am Christy Landwehr from Aurora, Colorado, and you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for this Tuesday, February the 20th, episode 1877. This episode is brought to you by the Certified Horsemanship Association. Good morning, Horse World. Houston, we have a problem. Ability equals skill plus knowledge. i got a bad feeling about this. Here's a
1: safety tip for you from the Certified Horsemanship Association.
2: Missed it by that much.
1: How can I change this to make
2: it better the next time? Help
1: you, I can Time for Training Tuesday on Horses in the Morning with the Certified Horsemanship Association. We have a full roster coming up on today's CHA episode. We're going to chat with Dale Myler, no no bigger and more well-known expert on bits around here that I know about than Dale, so he's going to tell us a little bit about that. And then Dr. Bob Coleman is going to stop by, and he's he's going to talk about uh, his collection of bits and what leverage bits are and how they work. And then at the end of the show, we're going to speak with Cheryl. How do you spell? How do you say Cheryl's last name? Because I'm going to get it wrong, Christy.
2: Yeah, no problem. Roanke Kronzberg. Ooh, it's
1: exotic. But she's not going to be exotic. She's going to tell us about some basics. And she's going to talk about direct pressure bits, the kind you see a lot of English writers using. So that's what's coming up on today's show. Well, welcome back to the show, Christy, who's here the third Tuesday of every month talking about all things training and teaching and instructing.
2: How you doing? I'm doing well, Coach Jen. It's fun to have you on today. Something a little different, huh? Got to spice it up sometimes. We like Glenn, but you know, got to spice it up. I'm spicy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think you are.
1: Oh my goodness, I'm I'm spicy. There we go. Well, uh, what's what's been going on in the life of the CHA and Christy since uh, we spoke last? Because I think
2: I don't think I was on the show with you last time. I don't think you were either. And I'll tell you, we are launching into full-blown clinic mode. Oh, my gosh. So all the host sites around the country, of which those listening that have an equine facility can be one, are sending in all their information. So if you go on our website right now, cha.horse, you will find a ton of certification clinics of all our different genre that you can audit or attend. It's a busy time.
1: So for, for, for folks who are new to the CHA episode, Explain to everybody what what the clinics are about. What are they? Why people want to go, et cetera, et cetera. Give me the lowdown.
2: I will. So we are the largest certifying body of horseback riding instructors in North America. So we are in all 50 states and most provinces up there in Canada. And the reason for it is, you know, over in like Great Britain and Germany, it's required by federal law that all e-crime professionals are credentialed in some way. And over here, not so much. It's more of a voluntary thing to do. But we do help a lot with insurance for folks that go through our certifications on their facilities and on themselves. Uh, We definitely help with marketing and driving students and other clients to you. So it's a great way to kind of show all of your clients that you've taken that extra effort and you've gotten a professional certification under your belt.
1: So who would, who can and who would attend one of your... Now, because the clinics, sometimes it's a clinic and sometimes it's a certification, or are is it always together?
2: No. So our clinics are all certifications. However, we have what's called conferences, and they go on in each region, and we have our big international one every fall. And the ones that are conferences are open to anybody. You love a horse? Come. There's going to be so much education there on everything from feeds and feeding to bits and bidding like we're talking about today to oh, how to ride all the different ways. Um, and we bring in a bunch of different breeds and disciplines. So you get to actually ride on horses while you learn from people, which is pretty fun. Whereas our clinics are actually for the equine professional. So either the f- equine facility manager who wants to get certified or the English or Western riding instructor or camp counselor or or university professor, somebody along those lines that's actually in the business already teaching.
1: So let's say someone listening to this show says, hmm, that's kind of cool. I've been a riding instructor for a couple of years now. And I think it would be cool that if I had a certification, it would give my prospective students um, more confidence and they would come to me rather than the guy down the road who doesn't have one. What is the first step they should take in order to attend a clinic or, uh, or certification?
2: So if they get on our website, cha.horse, and you go to clinics by location or date, so either you can find one near you or if you want to go to a different state and have a little vacation, you can certainly do that. Find the one that works best in your schedule. You contact the host site directly. All the information is there. And within 30 days of you attending the clinic, they will send you our CHA manuals. Um, They will also send you the information of kind of what to expect, which you can also find on our website. We have sample videos of uh, what to expect when you go, and you're basically going to be teaching a lot of lessons during the week. And what's neat about our instructor certification is you can achieve uh, the highest level when we go assistant through level four in both English and Western. You can achieve that right off the bat, your very, very first clinic, um, based on how many years you've been teaching and how much experience you have teaching groups to ride. And that's kind of the thing that sometimes makes people get stumbled up a little bit. Those that teach private lessons, we don't know if you can handle five. Those that teach five up and we watch you do it, we know you can handle one. And we want to make sure that every instructor that gets certified by us can work in a group environment or a private environment. So practice with your friends before you come. If you normally just teach privates, get, you know, your mom and dad and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters up there and give them a riding lesson.
1: Invite all the 4-H kids over.
2: There you go. There exactly.
1: You go. So, when you, so when someone attends a certification clinic, they can opt in to do whatever discipline they want and at whatever level they want, from one discipline at the lowest level to several disciplines at much higher levels.
2: Correct. So if you come to an English Western Standard Certification, both are happening simultaneously, Um, flat work in English, or you can certainly do it with the jumping. You know, that's totally up to you on that. And then, of course, the Western is the horsemanship and the reining patterns and things like that. No cattle work or roping. For those that are interested in that, we don't certify in that. And so in the same 40-hour clinic, you can get certified in both. So let's say you're more of a Western coach, then maybe you end up with a Western level three with us. You've never really done much English teaching, but you know, good horsemanship's good horsemanship, so you get an assistant in that. So you can end up getting definitely both seats, which is kind of exciting when you attend.
1: There we go. And then you can just continue on up as you gain more experience and, and do more. You can go up the levels each time you attend a clinic.
2: Absolutely. So if you've been teaching a long time, you can certainly get 4-4 right away. But if you haven't been teaching a long time and you're pretty new to the e- industry, you can certainly start off and um, you'll go ahead and teach a level one and then you'll teach all of the classes still and kind of see where you end up. And then the fun part is you'll also get to be a student in all the classes. So you'll end up getting taught how to do flying lead changes by the end of the clinic, whether or not you've ever done one. So that's kind of fun.
1: Pretty darn cool. So you go to cha.horse for all of this and more. Yes. There we go. And it looks to me like it's time to get a hold of our first guest, Dale Meyer.
2: We are so excited today to have on our Bits and Bidding another interesting Tack show, Dale Myler. And Dale and his brothers, Ron and Bob, are third generation horsemen and are three of the world's leading bit designers. Dale's extensive research into equine dentistry and physiology has evolved our understanding of not only the mechanics of bits, but also how they can contribute to the communication between both the horse and the rider. He has done bidding clinics and seminars all over the U.S. and even around the world. He also speaks at expos and for many organizations. He actually came to our international conference just a few years ago. So, Dale, thank you so much for being on the show today, and thank you to CoClot and Myler for sponsoring. Hi, Dale. It's so good to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Well,
3: thank you for having me.
2: So, Dale, explain to our listeners, where do you live? Where are you calling in from today?
3: Uh, We live in Marshfield, Missouri. So, we're in the middle of Missouri.
2: And how is your weather there right now in February?
3: Well, right now, it's in the the, uh, 20s. But it's been fluctuating from 70 to like 12 or 14 below chill factor. So, any given day, it can change.
2: You have to have every single article of clothing you own available in your closet ready to go.
3: Well, when you got as much weight around your bones as i got, you could go out in a t-shirt most any day <laughs> and be warm.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I had, it was so much fun having you at our CHA International Conference a few years ago when you came and talked to our instructors about bits and bidding. We loved having you.
3: Thank you. It was fun to be there.
2: I hope we can do it again. You know, we're going to be in Colorado this September, so I hear rumor that that may work in your schedule, so our fingers are crossed.
3: Well, just uh, I don't go any place I don't get invited, so that's what well, it takes.
2: Consider it a date. There you go. It'll be fun <laughs> to have All you. All right. <laughs> so, you know, you are truly with... Um, Myler, the expert in bits and bidding for many different reasons. And it's so much fun to have you on the show today because, of course, we're talking about that. And boy, you know, we always have a conversation around here about we don't talk about politics, religion, or with horseback riding instructors and trainers, bits and bidding at the dinner table because everybody has an opinion. So it's just so great to have you on to kind of explain the nuances of it and how it benefits the horse the most, because of course that's the whole reason. So what is the most exciting change that you've seen in bidding just recently? What, what are some different things that are going on right now?
3: Well, uh, just to clarify one thing right off the bat, I got two brothers that know as much or a lot more than I do about these horses. It's just that, they stay at the shop, and I'm the one that goes out and runs off at the mile so what i've uh the thing that intrigues me is that the English industry is really starting to to help a horse and figure out that there's more than just three or four bits that you can use to train every horse. so I'm real encouraged by the fact that they're trying to to do so many things to encourage people to try different, uh, techniques if they're having problems with their horse and see what happens.
2: And Dale, explain to our listeners about you and Ron and Bob, explain to us, you know, how Myler came about, um, when it was created, kind of the nuances of the company.
3: Well, Ron started the company. Ron uh, trained cutting horses for the public for a lot of years. And all the time that he was training horses, he was building bits for them. And, uh, The two things that he was trying to accomplish, one, he was trying to get a horse more relaxed into the bridle because the more relaxed they are, the more focused they are. And secondly, and more importantly, he needed to be able to put the shoulders wherever he wanted them because a horse follows the shoulder. He doesn't follow his head and neck. Head and neck are a balance point, but the horse follows the shoulder. So those are the two things he was trying to accomplish And then as things progressed, people started wanting some of the bits that he was building, and it turned into a little bit of a business. And then our brother Bob came into it, and Bob was a welder. And so when he came into the company, that was a real benefit to have a welder in there with us. And the first two or three years, he was very shy about talking to anybody about their horses and bits. But he has been really instrumental in designing a a lot of the new mouthpieces and stuff that we have come up with over the years. And now he is very, very capable of bidding horses.
2: So does Um, your company cater to all disciplines? Or what would you say in regards to that?
3: We build from the little miniatures up through the big channel giants. We build for every breed, every discipline.
2: I love that. And I love what, you know, it says um, in your introduction that I introduced you on in regards to your all history with kind of the equine dentistry and the physiology and that you're really looking at the horse's mouth to kind of see what space is in there and how can we work around so that there's the pressure points that are being utilized are good and that it's safe for the horse and that the horse enjoys having the bit in its mouth versus the antithesis of that. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
3: Well, we really advocate the dentistry because if the mouth isn't balanced out, the bit will not be the most effective it can be. If it's, if it's Even if it's the right bit for the horse, the mouth has got to be in excellent condition. So we've always highly recommended either a very good veterinarian or a very good equine dentist go through that animal's mouth and get it balanced out. So... But our theory has always been that a horse does not evade palate pressure. A horse does not evade the bar pressure. It's the tongue pressure they evade the most. Why do
2: you feel this tongue relief is so important to the horses?
3: Because the tongue is connected clear to the front shoulders of your horse. There are small muscles that go from the base of the tongue to the hyoid apparatus. And from the hyoid apparatus, there's two sets of muscles that go straight under the neck right into the center of the horse's chest, and then they go to both shoulders. So the tongue is directly connected through to the front shoulders of your horse. And then on the top side, it's not directly connected, but from the hyoid apparatus, there's small muscles that go to the TMJ. And you hear a lot of problems. People have with tension in the TMJ and stuff. So if you've got tension in that horse's tongue, you've got tension throughout his whole body.
2: I'll tell you, Dale, I can relate to that. When I was in college, this is many years ago now, but working on my master's degree and my silly thesis that, oh my gosh, was very stressful. I gave myself TMJ by grinding my teeth at night and ended up having to have a mouth guard in there and a retainer and then... Years later, not as much stress in my life, but still have ground a little bit to where I'm almost through the enamel on my teeth and may one day have to get caps. So, oh my gosh, the TMJ, I can't believe that we have that in horses as well.
3: Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's a big problem. You get a horse relaxed and give, get some pressure off that tongue and a lot of that problems in the TMJ goes away because it's exactly what you're talking about. A horse, when they get tension in that tongue, they can't use. It's part of their nervous system, and they can't use that circle of muscles. They go all through their body properly because it's interfering with them. Same as if you were to just clench your teeth and hold your teeth clenched for a while, you'd feel it go down the center of your back or be down your neck.
2: Yes, I did. That is very true. I just find that fascinating that some human elements the horse has as well. And how wonderful that you've been able to identify that and help them.
3: Well, it's all about, uh, that's part of our, our seminar, is the similarities between the humans and the animals that we work with. For instance, you take a human, a human being produces between 32 and 51 fluid ounces of saliva a day. How important is it for us to move our tongue and move saliva? Very. The average horse produces approximately 1,280 fluid ounces of saliva a day, which is 10 gallon. Depending on the size of the horse and the chemical makeup, they can produce between 5 and 15 gallons of saliva a day, so 10 would be the average. How important do you think it is for them? to be able to move that tongue and move saliva.
2: Absolutely. So much more important than even us. That's amazing. Well,
3: well, not not more because the human being produces the most saliva when we're working or when we're eating. The horse produces the most saliva when he's being worked or when he's eating. It's exactly the same thing. What happens to the human when you interfere with our ability to swallow properly is exactly the same thing that happens to the animals, the horse and the mule.
2: That makes so much sense. So if they have something going on in their mouth that's inhibiting that saliva, then they're going to have a whole lot of problems.
3: Right. And in reality, when you only add uh, like a single joint and a three-piece mouthpiece are by far the most popular bits in the world today, And if you really look at it, neither one of them bits are designed to make contact with both reins at the same time. Because if you go with one rein, you come over the tongue, you ask for a lateral maneuver. You go over the tongue, you ask for lateral. You're never interfering. The instant that you pick up with both reins, those mouthpieces collapse, they pinch the outer lips, they pinch the bars, and they go down and pull straight back into the tongue of the horse. And they start interfering with his ability to move that tongue more freely.
2: That definitely makes sense, which is why you were talking about at the beginning in regards to some changes in dressage, which of course is very um, direct pressure. So that's good that you're starting to see some changes there to help the horses.
3: Well, yeah, you know, uh, they've they've come up. Uh, fortunately, they've legalized some of our bits. But it's not only our bits that become legal when they did that; it's other bit builders' bits. So many people are. Every bit builder builds better bits, and a lot of people are riding on their horses because we only know about anything in life what somebody has taught us. True, and I I think a big thing that we're doing right now, and we have been for lots of years, is. We need to quit listening to people when it comes to how do I get my horse relaxed into the bridle. Because we listen to people like me, which you shouldn't listen to. You listen to trainers, you listen to the person riding the horse beside us, and the only one that we should be paying attention to is the horse. A rider or an instructor can explain to us how to sit balanced on a horse. How to use eights to make our lead changes and all this and that. But only the horse can tell you when he's relaxed in his mind. That and makes
2: absolute sense.
3: So let me ask you this if you're going to collect or frame a horse up, where's he collect or frame from? The hind. Okay. That's what people are taught, right? Yes. So now the question becomes. If that horse's head's up in the air, can he lift his withers and his back up properly and drive from behind through?
2: It would be very challenging.
3: If he's heavy on the forehand, can he lift his withers and his back up properly and drive his hip through him?
2: It would also be very challenging.
3: So in actuality, a horse does not come from the back to the front first. A horse has got to be relaxed enough in the mind They come right onto the vertical, lift his withers and his back up, and step up underneath himself. The mind is the absolute, and it's the last thing that we think about. The human being never does anything that doesn't go through the mind before we do it. The horse does nothing that doesn't go through the mind before he does it. If you've got a horse truly relaxed in the mind, you can control every part of that animal's body. Because they are focused on you. If he's not truly relaxed, you're always working on controlling some part of the body because he's always focused on you. But they're also focused on how to get away from something we're doing to him. So what's it take to make a relaxed mind? You've got to have the dental work right. You've got to have the right fitting saddle. You've got to have the chiropractic. You've got to have the shoes on the horse right. And possibly you might need the right bit. Of every piece of tack that we put on a horse, what piece of equipment is the closest to the horse's mind?
2: I would say probably the bit.
3: Absolutely. It's within inches of the mind, isn't it?
2: It sure is. Well, Dale, this and makes so safe. much sense because you're absolutely right. We have to have the mind of the horse there before we can do any of the other stuff so that they stay focused. So I love that analogy. Now, Dale, where do people find you? If they want to find out more about Myler, if they want to find out more about your bits and how they all operate, what is the best way to contact you? What is your website? Uh,
3: my website is miler. One five five seven eight at mylerbitsusa.com. Or they can go to mylerbitsusa.com at mylerbitsusa.com and that goes to the other computer also.
2: And you're also on Facebook, aren't you?
3: Uh, I think my brother is. I don't even know how to get on Facebook.
2: <laughs> I love it. Well, that's good. You know, you've been around so long that I'll tell you, you just Google Myler Bits, and you're going to find a way to reach Dale and his company that his brothers and he are working hard at for the betterment of horses. So, Dale, thank you so much for being on the show today and sponsoring our um, Bits and Bidding and Tax show. We really appreciate it.
3: Well, thank you, and we look forward to seeing you in September.
2: Yes, I'm excited about that.
3: All right. Thank you, Jim.
1: Well, Dale is such a fun guy to listen to and chat with and quiz. He's a, such a fascinating combination of totally old school. And yet the bits that they design and manufacture are so, I would call them high tech in that they're, they're really designed to an extremely high standard that is only um, possible by using high tech manufacturing processes.
2: I would agree, and they're constantly looking at them and saying, "Where don't they work? What do we need to change? What do we need to do?" They're not just producing a product and saying, "Yeah, we're done." They're always saying, "How can we make it better?"
1: Yes, and it, it's a it's a it's a very different point of view. And I the the discussion you that he had about how the horse's tongue is attached to their sternum—that's yes. very interesting. Isn't muscles fascinating? Yes, I'm going to have to find uh-huh. some. Yes, love that. I'm going to do some more googling on that because I've heard people talk about the uh, idea that when a horse is relaxed and moving properly, they are prone to yawning and sticking their tongues yes. out.
2: Yes, yes,
1: yes. And see, now I'm going to have to I have to read up some more on that. That might be a future health segment tip. That's exciting. Yeah, good stuff. Well. Full roster today, as I said before, and we've got Dr. Bob Coleman coming up. Tell us all about Dr.
2: Bob. I will. So one of the reasons I'm excited to have him up next, you know, he's very focused on uh, leverage bits and kind of how they work and kind of more of the Western. So Dale kind of got us started with all breed, all discipline. And now we're going to break out into two guests that are going to focus a little bit more on particular disciplines. So Dr. Bob grew up in Western Canada and has a lifelong interest in horses. He worked in the Canadian feed industry as a nutritionalist for two major feed companies and then became the extension horse specialist for Alberta Agriculture. He now works, though, here in the USA in extension for the University of Kentucky in Lexington and is a member of the Equine Science Society and also the American Registry of Professional Animal Scientists. With CHA, Dr. Bob is certified as a lead site visitor and trainer for us, for those of you going through the site accreditation process with us. And he also serves on the CHA board as our vice president for new initiatives. So very excited to have him on today. Thank you on the show today. Thank you for being on. You're welcome. So you got to meet Jen and Glenn in October in Lexington when we did the show live from there. That was kind of fun.
0: It was a lot of fun. Uh, wish there was a way to do it this way live, but
2: <coughs> we'll go with what we got. I know. It is fun. That's right. Absolutely. So I hear of this bit collection that I still have to see, so I don't exists or not, but I hear that you have this amazing bit collection. Will you tell us a little bit about what got you started collecting them and what all is in your collection?
0: Uh, I'm not exactly sure what got me started other than questions about them and then at a antique store in Arizona. I found a really interesting one and kind of got Really going after that, but I have about I don't know three hundred and fifty or three hundred and sixty different bits. Whoa! Holy
1: Um, smoly!
2: Where do you put them all?
0: um, I have them in very a nice uh, organized shelving unit in my basement that I have all the different kinds in different boxes. Um, I have my sort of regular bits that you might see at a in at somebody's tack room or at a you know in a tack store and then I have my collectible bits that um a lot of those are actually on bridles <clears throat> so that they are hanging on a bridle rack in in my basement so that um if I had a horse that was appropriate for the bridle um I could actually put it on and ride uh,
2: you'd be all set
0: cause Yep, I I like, and when I use it in class, I kind of like to have them uh, set up as you would use them um, so that the students actually have a better perspective. Um, I also find that when I do extension things and talk about bits that it's better to have them. Certainly, you can have some examples of just the bits, but you do actually have to, at some point put it together so people see how it is supposed to go together because a lot of times people don't know.
2: So herein lies the challenge because we're on the radio today, but can you describe for our listeners what a leverage bit is and how it works? Um, it is a little
0: hard, but uh, having to, <laughs> to do this a time or two in class, maybe I can give it a shot, but it's actually that bit that does um uh, give you the advantage of leverage so probably the easiest way to think about it is the teeter-totter in that how can you move something uh, a smaller force can move something larger and when you think about you have the shank that part of the bit below the mouthpiece uh, and then the the mouthpiece itself is kind of the fulcrum uh, part of our teeter totter, and then we can move things, and so it doesn't take very much force when we move that shank to actually get the the bit to rotate or to move in the horse's mouth and put pressure where we need it to to put pressure. Um, but also, it needs we need to re- remind ourselves that you know when the little kid can launch the big kid. Uh, Because they have more force, we can put a lot more pressure on that horse if we're not careful in how we use our hands because we have the mechanical advantage of leverage. It's probably the one part of physics in school that all horse people would appreciate and maybe would be glad that they took. That's probably the only part of physics that they would be glad they took.
2: Well, that is such a good way to describe a leverage bit is as a teeter-totter. So could you explain to people what some types of leverage bits are and when you would use them?
0: Uh, there's Certainly, I think a lot of people think of the Western style of riding and think of the, the curb bits that we have, which are a leverage bit. Uh, but other disciplines have them, too. Uh, if you think about some of the gated horses – that also use a curb bit, it might be called something a little bit different, but it again be anything that has a curb strap that allows that <clears throat> movement or the leverage to take effect uh, is a leverage bit. So even in the the hunter world, uh, well, they're not traditional, but a lot of people ride with a kimberwick, which has a curb chain and does give you leverage uh, and it's changed a little bit by whereabouts on that. Uh, bit you put your rain through which of the particular rain rings that you use, or the other one that commonly used, and I think sometimes we forget about it, is the the Pelham bit, which also has a curb chain and leverage. But, but the other part of it that I think everybody forgets about is they think that, that the curb bit or the leverage bit has to have a particular kind of mouthpiece, and it doesn't. Uh, It can have a jointed mouthpiece that we might think is a snaffle, but if it's on a shank with a curb strap and has leverage, it's not a snaffle bit. It is a leverage bit and hence a curb bit. So we we think about them relative to their mouthpiece, but we need to think about the the shank and all of the parts of the bit. So that would be where you attach the bridle, where you put the curb strap, and how long the shank is and how that impacts leverage um it also is impacted and and some of my collectible bits which i find are really interesting is uh way back when and i've got a couple that are you know well over 100 years old <clears throat> a very short shank um very modest mouthpiece um and for all 10 purposes a really simple bit that has a small amount of leverage um uh, and was the old style, very simple, and now we have some that are a little more elaborate, but essentially do the same thing.
2: I love how you brought up that it's not about whether a bit is jointed or not. I think that that's such a misnomer in um, people that are getting into horses, that everything that's jointed is a snaffle, and everything that is not jointed is a curb, and it has really nothing to do with that. So I'm really glad you brought that up.
0: Yeah, so it's frustrating because, you know, you go to the catalog and what's it called? It's called a Tom Thumb Snaffle, (laughs) but it's not.
2: Uh Uh-huh. I, you know, if I could get on my little soapbox, there's a few things in the tack catalogs that I would change. But since I don't work for them, I guess I'm not allowed to do so. But yes, I think some stuff is definitely not labeled correctly and it gets confusing. Very true. So, Bob, how should one? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. It, especially the new
0: people. I mean, we talk in a foreign language.
2: Oh, without a doubt. Especially words like Kimberwick that you mentioned, Martingale, Ergot, right? We could just go on and on. And yep. the new person is going, what? So I agree. The more that the terminology is correct, the easier. So how should one go about, If though we have listeners right now that might be transitioning a horse that has been ridden, let's say, with two hands and more direct pressure... What are some things that you recommend for a transition to take place if they want to start using a leverage bit on a particular horse? Um,
0: generally, uh, most of the time it it'll be more of a Western style. But I would I like to, <clears throat> to use, and I I find it a lot easier on the horse, and it's a lot easier on the rider to have a leverage bit that has a loose shank, so it's not firmly attached to the mouthpiece, so you have a little more flexibility. Um, I would probably think about having a jointed mouthpiece, and I would probably start riding that bit with two hands so that you're not introducing a lot of confusion to the horse. We're going to teach them a little bit about leverage and how the pressure changes, because it's going to have an impact on where it kind of changes in its mouth. But it's a a more subtle change if you ride two-handed. And a lot of times it's just easier on the horse. And if you watch sometimes when people have gone to one-handed a little too, too quick, maybe more for the rider than the horse, and they pick their hand up and it, it causes that loose shank bit to to really form a nutcracker on that horse, and it puts a lot more pressure on the bars, <clears throat> maybe grabs their tongue a little bit if it's a jointed mouthpiece, and confuses the horse. But if you gradually teach them that this is what it feels like when I ask with both hands, and then move from riding two-handed to one-handed with that same bit, it's a lot easier on the horse and having some flexibility in his mouth so it's not so harsh um, and having the looser shanks so that there is that flexibility. And oh, I find it a whole lot easier riding, even from a warm-up standpoint personally, um Because the one horse I ride has a jointed mouthpiece, it's a loose shank bit, but I ride two handed just to get warmed up and help him get warmed up. And then I move to to one handed during that riding session. So we're all kind of figuring out and we're happy with our lot in life, and then on we go. Um, And then maybe move towards if, if your discipline requires something a little bit different, then you can. Can move to that, or the horse might even ride more respectfully with a little bit different mouthpiece, but realize that when it's a solid shank bit, the way the message gets created is a whole lot different than if it's a loose shank bit.
2: I love that. And I also think this is a really good time to mention, you know, the four natural aids of riding our seat legs, hands, voice, and you heard the order. So your seats and your your seat and your legs, if they're doing a really good job then transitioning a horse um with the two hands like you talked about, Bob, and then going to one hand should be easier on the horse because you're not guiding it around by its face all the time. You're actually riding it with your body and legs. So what you do with the reins, because it comes third, um, the transition should be really smooth if you get really good with your seat and your legs. So well, I love that. And everybody thinks yes, and everybody thinks we neck rein. <clears throat> and I always
0: think about watch the cow the old cowboy shows when those guys would be heading out of town to chase the bad guy, you know, and they would crank that horse around to turn and they're pushing them with the left lane and that nose is left rein and that nose is going to the left because they're not pushing, they're pulling, you know, all the rein does with that shank bit is you give him direction by laying it on his neck and he knows that your leg's coming and he moves off your leg, not off the rein. So you're exactly right. We need to use all of our aids in the right order, uh, and on we go. Uh, it's a combination of things, and the horses figure it out. If if we're good at asking the questions, they're great at answering them.
2: Absolutely, and I love your definition and the visual of the old West movies, because who hasn't seen one? They're very easy to go find now and watch, and I know sometimes we uh, – watch those movies and i talk a lot and my children and my husband say will you just stop talking i go but the horsemanship is just so bad i just have to say something <laughs> they just laugh at or, me i always look at it and i always pick the ones
0: like the you know the the really good guy and the really bad guy always ride the best moving horses
2: <laughs> yes <laughs> you think hollywood might do that on purpose <laughs>
0: I think maybe. Maybe. If you're the star, you get to ride a smooth one.
2: That's right. (laughs) Well, Bob, we so appreciate you being on the show today and talking about this subject because it is definitely uh, one that, you know, there's whole books written about this subject. So if people want to find you and learn more about UK and about you, um, what's the best website or way for them to do that?
0: Probably just to, t- to contact my email. I am working on a, or watch for my web uh, my Facebook page, Equine Extension with Dr. Bob, coming soon.
2: Oh, very good. And also, you can, in the meantime, people can also find you on our CHA uh, website yep. as you're a member. So great. Well, and, Bob, thank you so much for being to- on. You bet. We all have something to learn from all of us. Absolutely.
1: Well we could go on and on and on about bits and lever bit leverage bits and such and so could Dr. Bob he's so fun to listen to.
2: I'll tell you there is so much to this topic and it's fascinating and I never stop learning. I'm constantly learning. The minute I think, "Oh, I got this bit thing figured out." I'm like, "Okay, I don't even know what that bit is in that catalog."
1: <laughs> well, they're constantly wow. they're constantly being invented. I and I so appreciate how he stressed that a leverage type bit versus a direct pressure type of bit, which is what we're going to talk about next, you need to look at the bit and the mechanics, not the name of the bit. Yes, that's huge. Yeah, the name of the bit really has nothing to do with anything.
2: <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> it does not.
1: And that the leverage bit, a what in the English world is called a... Gag bit, and I think in a lot of Western disciplines it's called a gag bit as well, does not have a curb chain or curb strap, but it still creates leverage. So you can't say only bits with curb straps have true. leverage bits. So there's there's many subtle differences. So as you're looking through catalogs and looking at horses at horse shows and venues where you hang out see lots of horses it's fun to watch them to look what's on the horses faces and and how the mechanics work and how the riders might use their hands and bodies differently with different setups on the horses heads
2: it is and I'll, and again you can never stop learning though every now and then unfortunately you see something like i did at a horse show once where the bit was on upside down and backwards oops before the Person was about to go in the arena, and so this young lady did not have a trainer with her. So I went ahead and went up. It was at a four H show, and I just explained to her how it has to go. And her mother was so appreciative, and they were able to change the bit. and I think the horse was probably a whole lot happier, though. What yeah. a saint for being like, "Fine, I'll go in with my bit on upside <laughs> down and backwards." I mean, what a saint!
1: <gasps> oh my goodness, and that's something. Well, that's that's really cool, and you know, it's not just leverage bits that can sometimes get put on upside down and backwards. Direct Pressure boots can too, as well. Very true. So why don't you introduce our next guest who is going to talk about just that.
2: So excited. So this is Cheryl Ronke-Kronesburg. She lives in Yorba Linda, California, and runs CRK Stables, where she teaches riders and trains horses down there in Southern Cal. With CHA, Cheryl is a past regional director for us and also a master instructor and clinician. She enjoys teaching all levels of riders, both in English and Western, but most enjoys working with her beginning show riders. So, hello, Cheryl. Welcome to the show.
4: Well, thank you, Christy. It's great to be here.
2: So, for those that are listening that heard all about the horrible fires in California, can you kind of describe where you are in relation to them and were you affected at all at your facility?
4: Um, Well, I am kind of in the middle between where all the fires were, so we were not directly affected Um, The Anaheim Hills fire was close enough to us and there were several stables that were affected that we ended up taking evacuation horses to our facility. Um, So we did end up bringing a lot of horses in for a couple of days, but most of those were able to go back to their facilities. Um, There was one stable near us that did burn, but all the horses were gotten out, um, but we didn't get any horses from there. So, yeah, scary days. lots Uh, of smoke lots of unhappy horses and scared owners but we did okay
2: well so glad that's over I hope you're getting some moisture now so that it doesn't happen again
4: well that would be nice but no (laughs) we have we have gotten an inch and a half of rain this year I think so and it's supposed to be it's been in the mid 80s for the last several weeks and that is supposed to continue with possibilities of 90s coming up in the next couple
2: days Wow. That so, is really you know,
4: winter, warm. Yeah. February. No no. All my horses in their winter coats are dying. We've had to put up tarps so they have shade.
2: So Isn't that crazy? Uh,
4: not been fun.
2: No. Well, I'm gonna hope for some moisture. You know, Southern California is of course my Uh, Where I grew up, and now I'm in Denver, though I'll tell you, we're pretty drought ridden here in Denver, too. We're having a lot of not so much rain and snow either. Um, We're having cold temperatures, and you know, my ground freezes and stuff like that, but not really the moisture. I had to actually bring in a deep root water system for my trees, never had to do that before. But we were losing so many trees, we hired a tanker to come out and actually put um, water deep into the roots. Kind of crazy, yeah.
4: Yeah, there's a lot of trees on my place that I've had to water that we never used to have to water in the last few years. And we've lost quite a few to the drought. So,
2: yep, it's a problem. Well, we just had Dr. Bob on, and he was telling us all about leverage bits. So now we'd love to talk a little bit more about what the definition is of a direct pressure bit and how they work. So let's jump right on into that topic, if you don't mind, and kind of explain to our audience uh, your definition of that.
4: So a direct pressure bit um, is pretty much what it sounds like. Um, if you apply five pounds of pressure through the reins to the bit that is in the horse's mouth, the horse is going to feel five pounds of pressure. There isn't any leverage that changes that amount of pressure or changes the pressure points. So basically the pressure is going to go to the corner of the horse's mouth or possibly to the bars of the mouth, but usually almost all the pressure goes to the corners of the mouth to the corner of the lips. And, um, you know, so we don't get a lot of pressure in other places like we would with a leverage bit. There's no curb chain. There's no pull pressure, things like that. So that's why we call it direct pressure.
2: Directly so can you name break. some of the different types for us and when they be um, used? Well,
4: there's, yeah, there's lots of different types. And a lot of times the different types are um, either have their own names like a Dr. Bristol or a Kimberwick or something like that. Um, But then there's also sometimes that they're named by what they are or how they're built. So you could say you have an O-ring twisted wire, and that's based on the shape of the ring on the side and what the mouthpiece is like. So lots of different kinds, O-rings, D-rings, egg butts. Um, That's usually the different types of the rings. And the mouthpiece can either be fixed or sliding on the ring. So an egg butt bit typically has a fixed um, mouthpiece on the ring. The O-ring bits can often have a sliding mouthpiece. So there's lots of different types. Um, And like I said, a lot of times they're just based on the description of the bit.
2: And I know you open up a tech catalog and you say, oh my goodness, I don't even know where to start. So for our listeners out there that are trying to figure out what type of direct pressure bit they might need with their horse, what are some different ideas you have to guide them in the right direction?
4: Well, whenever I have a client that comes to me and says they need a different bit for their horse, the first thing I want to find out is what have they tried? What has the horse been in before and why isn't it working? Because sometimes it's not necessarily a bidding issue, it might be a training issue. And if it's a training issue, a bid is not going to fix it, the horse just needs training. So that's the first thing we have to try to eliminate is, is it a training issue or is it a bidding issue? So if we decide it's a bidding issue, then we need to figure out what kind of bit the horse has been in, what his training level is, what do we expect him to be able to do, and then figure out a bit that's going to be appropriate for that. So snaffle bits can be, you know, our direct pressure bits are often referred to as snaffle bits. And horses can stay in those their whole life, and they're wonderful training tools. But the horse has to be trained, and that has to work for that horse, and the horse has to be comfortable in it. So lots of different things. It can be as severe or as gentle as you want it to be based on your hands. But when we're talking about different bits, you know, we can go into what makes a bit more severe or more gentle. But you have to start off with what does the horse know and what do you want it to know?
2: I agree with that. And also the rider's hands, I think come into play too. Don't they a little bit in of regards course. to what they know?
4: Of course. Yeah. When you have beginning riders that maybe don't have the kindest hands just because they don't know, then you might have to go to a, a less severe bit just to protect your horse. Um, so, or sometimes if we're going into competition and we think that the horse might be a little bit more alert or attentive because there's so much going around, we might need a little bit more bit in that situation. But hopefully if we're a competition rider, we know how to ride and our hands are going to be kind. But, uh, so sometimes for competition might need to step up a bit.
2: I have a horse, his name is Chip and he's an Appaloosa thoroughbred and so I fondly refer to him as my mule speed. And I'm allowed to say that because I own an Appaloosa thoroughbred. <laughs> so he has moments of both of those breeds and he has, yeah. you know, good of both of those breeds, and they're not so good. He gave me such a lesson in bits and bidding. When I first got him, I was all about the snaffle that just had the one joint. That's just what I do, is what I'm gonna put on him. And he said, no, thank you to that. So I have mm-hmm. to have him in what's called either a KK bit or a French link or something that has the two. Um actual pressure points on the tongue. So it's actually double jointed because then it curves around his tongue a little bit better, I think, and he's much happier. So can you describe a little bit about the single and the double jointed and your thoughts on those? Um, Well,
4: there's lots of different joint styles, everything from a single joint, um, which tends to put more pressure on the corner of the mouth and less on the tongue. And, And you can go up to two links, Like a French link, and then you can also go all the way up to, um, you know, what you call some of our chain bits or things like that that have multiple links. And I think it just the more links you have, the more tongue pressure you're going to provide, and it's going to take a little bit away from the corners of the mouth. And for some horses, they will be very happy with that and they like that. And others are not. I had a horse like yours who absolutely hated a jointed bit of any kind, and when we put her in a a solid mouth snaffle she was quite happy. So she didn't want any joint in her mouth. And so, you know, that would normally be considered to be more severe. And she didn't need a more severe bit, but that's what made her happy. So like you said, you have to go with not only what your horse will work in and that you can control him in, but what he's happy in. Because some of them just like certain things. When you're talking about the mouthpiece of the bit, also you have to think about the width of the mouthpiece. The general rule is that the wider the mouthpiece, the milder the bit. But some horses will have a very shallow palate and they will not be at all comfortable in a big, fat, rubber snaffle, even though it's very mild and they have a sensitive mouth. So there's so many things that you have to think of beyond just how many links does it have. But you have to think about the shape of the mouthpiece, the shape of the horse's mouth, and what makes the horse happy.
2: I love that you brought up about the uh, snaffle that doesn't have a joint. A lot of times they're referred to as a mullen mouth snaffle. And I'm so glad about that because Dr. Bob, who was on earlier, was having a conversation about just because it says snaffle doesn't mean it's jointed. And just because it says leverage doesn't mean it's straight bar. You can have lots of jointed curbs and so on. So that's oh, great that you brought that up too. So another kind of question in regards to this then, because we're going down this great detail, is some bits have copper inlays and all kinds of things like that. What are your thoughts on those?
4: Um, Well, I actually like copper inlay. Um, the, The theory behind that is that copper has a flavor that horses like. And because it has a flavor that horses like, it will encourage salivation, which will encourage a softer mouth and more responsive mouth. Um, so a lot of my snaffle bits are what we call sweet iron, which is just iron with it, it has a copper inlay. And my horses seem to really like those. Um, I also like just sweet iron bits. A lot of people don't like them because they rust and they think that that's going to be a big problem. And it and it's not, it doesn't hurt our horses, it's fine. Um, you can also go with stainless steel, which is what most bits are, but it doesn't really have much of a flavor to it. So, you know, if your horse is fine with that, then that's nice. Um, but if, they, if you want a horse to be a little bit softer or play with a bit a little bit more, you might want to go with um, a sweet iron. I'm always leery of bits that are just copper because copper by itself, particularly in a snaffle bit, because in a snaffle bit, the horses can pick the bits up and chew on them. Copper is a very soft metal and you can get very sharp points with those. Um, when the horses have been chewing them and they can actually chew the bit and uh, make it to where it's completely in a different shape and give it some very sharp edges. Um, I have a bit collection and that I have a couple bits like that that are copper or copper wrapped that I have, you know, kind of acquired from people when I took them away from them and said, you can't use this on your horse anymore because he's hurting his mouth. So you have to be very aware of the materials that you're putting in your horse's mouth and you have to check them. You have to keep an eye on them and make sure that the bits are staying in a good shape.
2: I love that you brought that up. Cleaning your bits is so important and, you know, always having that toothbrush there ready to get the gunk and everything off of them, especially if you let your horse eat grass, let's say, when you're on the trail and they take a bite or whatever. They can get really messed up really quick and also cause pressure points on the mouth. So I'd love that you brought that up.
4: Yeah, when we're, you know, we're checking our equipment, checking our bridles and our bits, it's very easy to get complacent if you have one horse that has one bridle that you use all the time. And, you know, you just put the bridle on and you go about your business and you don't realize that horses can change, their head shape can change, you know, even just from growing a bridle path out can affect whether the bridle fits them or a winter coat. And also leather stretches and the bit can sit too low in the horse's mouth, things like that. So we always need to be checking our equipment and not get complacent just because same horse, same bridle that can really be a a problem.
2: So Cheryl, when we introduced you, we talked about how you love to work with the beginning show rider. Is there anything in regards to bits that you need to know before you go show your horse in competition?
4: Well, of course you absolutely need to know what's legal Um, depending on what competition that you're in. You need to know what bits are legal. Um, Most, Clubs will have a rule that they you know, rule book that they will follow, whether it be American Quarter Horse Association or just your local shows. So you need to find out what the rules are for, for your shows that you're going to. And then of course you need to make sure that your bits comply with those rules. Um, snaffle bits, one area that people usually get into trouble is the bits, the mouthpiece of the bit will be too thin or too narrow. And there's, you know, definitely rules against that because it makes the bit more severe. Um, You also need to make sure that if you are showing Western that your horse is five years of age or younger if they are in a snaffle bit. Once they are six years old, they are required to be in a leverage bit for Western. So you need to make sure that you know about that and that your horse can work Western one-handed. So big thing, know the rules, make sure that your bits comply. And you also need to be able to take the bridle off should the judge ask to show your bit.
2: That is a very good point. And sometimes those of us might have horses that have sensitive ears, and so very good to know how to do that for them if you need to show that. That's wonderful. So, Cheryl, how can folks contact you? Um, I know, obviously, through our CHA, uh, chainstructors.com website, but what is your website address?
4: Um, my website is Training stable and that is all one word and there is no s at the end of stable dot, uh, dot com and the website is um should be available all the time i do write it myself and there is a blog on there that has some fun articles and some helpful articles
2: I would agree. Cheryl is actually right now working on her journalism degree, like she doesn't already have a lot to do. um, And her writing is very good. So for those of you that are interested in reading more and learning more, um, visit her website. So Cheryl, thank you so much for being on today. Um, We were talking to Dale and Bob about how we're going to see them in September. And anyone listening, you can come to our international conference in September out here in Colorado, where I live, up at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. So Cheryl, I hope to see you there.
4: Well, I hope to come this year. I haven't been able to make it the last couple of years and really miss it. Um, I've missed out on that great educational opportunity and just seeing everybody and having such a great time. So, hoping to put that on my schedule this year. And thank you so much for having me on the show today. I greatly
2: appreciate it. Well, Cheryl is a delight. Very much so. I actually had the pleasure of certifying Cheryl years ago at a clinic. And she was supposed to come one year and then, bless her heart, broke her back. (laughs) Had a fall, broke her back. Yeah, got her back, all back up to normal. And then the year later, came out and got certified. So she's now a clinician for us and everything else and a really great gal. So how many people do you think you've certified over the years? Myself? Yeah.
1: Huh.
2: Well, let's see. I've been part of CHA now for 15 years. I do normally just two clinics a year because, you know, being the CEO keeps me pretty busy. We normally have 10 at every clinic I do. So what would that be? 15 times 20? That's a bunch. Well, quite a few.
1: Yeah,
2: wow. So overall, CHA certified 30,000 people wow. since we began 50 years ago. Yeah, so wow. a lot of people. And not all of them stay as members because, you know, people change jobs and go, and sure. do yeah. different things. But, yeah, 30,000, our database just hit. It was pretty amazing.
1: That's crazy. Wow. So I want to know. There's one question we did not answer, and I'm, point, I'm posing this to the listenership. Why is it that the, horse, the bit that my horse likes best is always the really, really expensive one? Why doesn't he ever like the $9 <laughs> double-jointed loose ring snaffle? Of course
2: not. No. <laughs> Wants to make you work hard for your money, Jen. Work hard. Oh, my goodness. Have you ever had one of
1: those horses that you struggled and just went through every bit in your bit collection trying to find something that made their mouth happy?
2: You know what? And yes, I did. And you know what we ended up going with was a bitless bridle. So you, you know, Sometimes
1: it's no bit at all that makes them happy.
2: Absolutely. I mean, Dr. Cook, I got to throw in a little plug for him, too. He's also been at our international conference and had a huge conversation about just going bitless. So, again, there's so many nuances <gasps> of this topic. That's another, that's another topic. We
1: could do another show on... Headgear that doesn't have a mouthpiece in it.
2: We sure could. That's pretty complex too. Oh, yeah. It goes on and on and on. Oh, put that on your list of things to do. I'll tell you, the Training Tuesday shows can go on forever. It's (laughs) great.
1: That is literally true. Literally. (laughs) Well, that's really cool. And if you loved this episode, you need to tune in to the CHA episode every month on the third Tuesday, or if you go to horsesinthemorning.com, you'll see uh, about a third of the way down the the page, there's a whole bunch of little icons for all of our monthly shows, and you'll see see CHA there. If you click on that, it brings up all the CHA episodes, and the CHA episodes are always all about training horses and training riders, so it's great for
2: instructors and students as well. Be great to have you come do that. It's been a fun thing to do, you know. In that part of your job where they say, "What do you like the most?" I pretty much say, "Oh, my monthly thing with Glenn and Jen is one of the best things I do." Thank you. And they just laugh at me. They're like, "That hasn't changed." I like no, no, I still like that the best. It is
1: fun. We get to geek out on horse training. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And to find links to today's guests and show notes, of course, it's horsesinthemorning.com, and you can follow us on Facebook if you don't do that already. Just go to Facebook and type in there horses in the morning. We also have a Twitter account. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is horse radio and make sure you have all of your network, all of your favorite horse radio network shows with you wherever you go by downloading the free horse radio network app for your iPhone or your Android. You can also subscribe via iTunes or your favorite pod catcher.
2: And And if you want to find CHA, we're on all those social media things too. Just do CHA instructors and we come up on all of them. So we'd love to continue the networking.
1: There we go. And they have a great Facebook page. I follow it. And uh, all sorts of really cool posts there. And thank you very much for Myler Bits for helping to support this month's episode. And I guess uh, everybody out there will be seeing you again tomorrow. Have a good one.